Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies and I'm here with my co-host Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week we will be discussing the new Netflix film Velvet Buzzsaw, directed by Dan Gilroy and starring Jake Gyllenhaal, who last collaborated on Nightcrawler. Uh, Velvet Buzzsaw is a Los Angeles art world satire slash horror film featuring Gyllenhaal as caddy influential art critic Morph Vanderwelt. That is a great name. This character's name. <laughs> uh, Rene Russo as the owner of a major art gallery, Tony Collette as a museum curator, and Zawi Ashton as a young assistant who stumbles upon a treasure trove of unknown paintings when her elderly neighbor dies. Uh, and it sort of turns into a horror film later in the movie, which we will discuss. Yeah. This podcast will include spoilers. Like, this is a really spoilery movie, I think. Yeah, I don't see how you can talk about it without spoiling it. It's on Netflix. It's very accessible. So I don't know what else to say. It's basically impossible to talk about without spoiling it. So um, if you want to have a non-spoiled experience, go watch it and then come back and listen to this podcast. So Nightcrawler came out a few years ago. You just watched that. So I want to just give a little background on that film first for context, because we'll be comparing this movie to that one, I think, as we talk. And that got quite a bit of attention at the time. Yeah, Nightcrawler is brilliant. Like, it's just one of the best movies from whichever year that came out. Um, definitely better than this film. Like, I enjoyed this film, but it was kind of trashy. Um, Nightcrawler has Jake Gyllenhaal playing this very frightening American psychoist performance. Like, not the same kind of performance, but that kind of zone. Um, he's a man who basically starts his own paparazzi business, but it's not like celebrity paparazzi. He's a, an ambulance chaser who goes and gets footage of really horrifying car crashes and stuff around LA. And it's just this amazing performance from Jake Gyllenhaal. He is so unnerving in it. And he's got this really great partnership with Riz Ahmed, who's kind of his employee intern type person in this and then Rene Russo is his employer and it's just got this fantastic interplay of characters where they're all working in this kind of gross underworld of nasty violent clickbait footage but Jake Gyllenhaal's character is the only one who comes across as like an actual psychopath everyone else is like well we have this nasty job but we've kind of legitimized it in our own minds whereas he just is like well I love to just watch people die and film it. Uh, so that film is like fantastic it's very cleverly written beautifully shot um, just a really wonderful film and this is kind of tonally very different and also as I said trashier although Morgan just didn't like it where I was like this is fun (laughs) yeah well one of the interesting things about Nightcrawler is that they managed to make Jake Gyllenhaal unattractive which is a feat that I had previously believed to be impossible they actually managed to pull it off. He has this sort of weirdly long hair and just looks really sunken and weird. Like he he's lost really a lot of gaunt, but for his, it. He, yeah. the facial expressions he does, he has these sort of golem like sort of stretched out grins and these horrifying like flat eyes. Like he's this cold stare. God, it's unnerving. <laughs> it's really creepy. He was definitely like sixth spot for an Oscar nomination that year and didn't make it in, which was too bad. It's just a very, very compelling performance. I need to watch that movie again. I haven't seen it since it came out. I do think it's a movie with some problems, but it's basically structured just as a um, character study of this guy. The supporting characters who you mentioned are also really compelling and the performances are great, but the way the movie is kind of set up, it's definitely just like about this person and his bizarre personality and this sort of strange world and like how fucked up he is. This movie is not set up like that. 
Jake Gyllenhaal is definitely the main character, but it's much more of an ensemble piece, and it's about this situation where this woman finds these paintings and everything that happens as a result of that. And I, th- I mean, honestly, I think that Zoe Ashton is like virtually the co-lead of the film. Yes. But she just doesn't get credited that high because she's the only member of the cast who isn't famous. Right. And I think all the actors in this movie are very good. They do what they can with the material that's given to them. I think it's perfectly cast. I think everyone is like, they're all very, they're all perfectly cast for the types that they are playing, right? So like Tony Collette is playing this woman who is uh, a curator at like the art, this art museum in Los Angeles. I don't know that it's actually a real art museum, but I'm not sure. And then early in the movie, she quits and becomes like an advisor to this unnamed, very rich person. Like she's just getting paid a ton of money to buy paintings for this guy. And she's essentially playing her character from Velvet Goldmine. Like everything about her performance is the same as the parts in Velvet Goldmine where she's like playing the confident version of that character, which is not a criticism. It's a very fun performance and she's really good at it. Rene Russo, who is married to Diane Gilroy, um, which is kind of fun since she's been in both of these movies, is very good at being this kind of cutthroat gallery owner. Uh, I've never seen Zoe Ashton in anything. As you say, she's the one person who's not famous. I have some stuff to say about her character that we'll get into a little bit later, but I think given the material that she is given, she does a really good job. I hope she gets more parts in the future. But I think the movie just doesn't work. And so it kind of wastes these performances from these people because it doesn't really give them enough to do. And the characters aren't super interesting. And the one character who feels very idiosyncratic and compelling is the Jake Gyllenhaal character, whose name is Morph, which is just so bizarre, but entertaining. And he is playing this completely simultaneously kind of recognizable, but also very distinct person He's the this the art critic who like goes to these shows. You figure out right at the beginning of the movie that he is like the art critic. Like, he, like the theater critics for the New York Times always get depicted in movies about theater in New York, right? Like if he gives a bad review to a gallery opening, like it's dead. If he gives a good review to the gallery opening, then their paintings are all going to sell and it'll be great. I don't really know if this is realistic to the art world, but that's fine. It works in the context of this movie. And... He is playing a bisexual man. He has very sort of campy mannerisms that are very fun. He's clearly having the time of his life playing this role. It's very entertaining. And I kind of wanted the movie just to be like about that guy. And instead it winds up involving everyone in this whole sort of plot about these paintings that I did not find compelling because it felt very underbaked. Like this movie basically felt like a first draft. And I think it could have been good if it had not been a first draft well so i was like so surprised when this supernatural stuff started happening because the cast and the fact that i'd recently watched nightcrawler and just the general kind of the the concept of it being about this high-end art world suggests that it is going to be just a straight satirical drama but the actual plot is kind of like a buffy episode or something or like a really corny horror movie which, as I said, I enjoyed. But um, the concept is, you know, that the, this young woman who is kind of on one of the lower rungs of this clearly very competitive career ladder finds all of these incredible paintings that clearly are really evocative of something, which are from this unknown artist who died, which is sort of one of these classic things that happens every few years. There will be some type of found art 
that will make a lot of headlines and people will be really excited about it as kind of an outsider work. And she's like, well, obviously I can profit from this. And that kind of, it's a, one of these stories where it's about sort of greed doing people wrong and everyone becomes obsessed with these paintings. But, you know, these paintings are haunted because the man wanted them to be destroyed. And it just leads to a string of gory, violent, horrifying and quite funny deaths. And it's just like, my goodness, this is, this is, there's, there's a lot happening here. <laughs> Well, I had watched the trailer, so I knew what was going to happen in terms of, like, that being the trajectory of the film. But I think the movie was kind of trying to be two things at once and didn't totally succeed at being either. So it's simultaneously trying to be this satire of the art world and then also a horror movie. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with mixing genres in that way. I enjoy horror films that are not just like pure classic horror films. In fact, that kind of pure classic horror film tends to be the kind of horror movie I'm the least interested in. But it felt like because he was sort of trying to do both things, he didn't do either one of them that well. Like I found the horror stuff in this movie definitely like the least interesting part of it and not that well executed as horror the one part that's really great is the way Tony Collette dies, which is like excellent and very frightening. Um, all the other deaths, I was sort of like, okay, like I just wasn't, they just didn't make me frightened at all. And like, it takes a lot to actually genuinely like scare me. So that that's not exactly what I'm looking for, but I just didn't find them that suspenseful. I don't, it's hard to describe exactly. You could sort of tell he's not a horror director, right? It's it's two very different concepts to have to try and stick together because you can have, you know, a high concept horror movie or you could have like a horror, a funny horror movie. But this was someone who it really did seem kind of like he'd started off with this really great idea to do, to, you know, write this story satirizing all these high art people. And then the fact that he was adding all the murder stuff was just like one element too far. Yes, particularly because... The story with this artist, his name is, I don't remember the guy's first name, but the last name is Dees, and that's the the name they keep repeating all the time, like the Dees, whatever, is reference to the paintings. You sort of find out that, like, he's he's definitely killed someone, maybe he's killed a couple people, he was in jail for a while, but they don't ever really explain everything about him in a way that's satisfactory. And like at one point, um, this character played by Tom Sturridge has a private investigator do this report about him and he's gonna do a press conference about it. And then he has this file and puts it in a file cabinet and then he dies and no one ever finds the file in the file cabinet. And I was like, that is a fucking Chekhov's gun (laughs) that never goes off. Come on people, like please. And not that every single thing about this person has to be, you know, explained on like a whiteboard with people pointing at it, but it just felt like I wasn't interested in that person. They didn't make him compelling to me. And if the whole point of the movie is like, we found this guy's art, oh my God, and he explicitly says he wants it destroyed, and then this woman, as you said, like, doesn't destroy it, that person should be very intriguing, and we should want to find out what his deal is in order to make the rest of the movie work. And I was just like, okay, like he's just this dead guy. You don't get a sense of him. And since yeah, he's- Yeah, well, they also, they don't have like the mechanism behind the curse because- Right, yes. Obviously both of us kind of enjoyed the art stuff more, but it's sort of weird that um, 
all of the art world stuff is extremely specific. It was very fun and very kind of well observed. And it's such a specific setting that I think most audiences are not going to come into this being like, oh, this feels like a familiar scenario. Like most people are not particularly well versed in, you know, the idea of all of this super high-end art being used as like a collectible commodity rather than just being something you visit in a museum. Because this is, you know, this world where there is these invisible billionaires who are basically, you know, using art as a tax dodge where you will hire someone who is an expert to buy something that they say is really trendy. So you look cool and then you have your money stored in this like economically inflated value of just a painting of like a green square or something. And then you have this character who's played by John Malkovich, who's sort of the equivalent of one of these sort of now middle-aged, like the very top end of extremely expensive contemporary art, where most of his work is clearly being manufactured by assistants in a factory and he's not made anything original in ages. This is all like really interesting types of character to have in a story about the art world. But then the horror part is like one of the most conventional stories. And I don't think that having a conventional horror story is bad at all, because loads of horror movies are very conventional and are brilliant in execution. But it's sort of like, oh, there's this character is left a curse behind after their death, which is if you like disturb the sacred burial ground, which in this case is like, don't sell my paintings, then you will become cursed. And that's what happens. But that was kind of a little bit too shallow like they either have to make it clear that it's like oh you're disobeying his wishes and therefore being attacked by his spirit or you know the fact that he is this potentially evil murderer in life is the thing that's toxic instead and it felt like there was definitely should have been some kind of commentary on the contrast between all of the main characters are completely obsessed with art but none of them really seem to have a sincere appreciation of it apart from maybe Jake Gyllenhaal who is simultaneously a massive weird phony and also genuinely like loves his work in a way that I actually found quite interesting and charming. But then the, the idea is like this work is so kind of viscerally compelling, the stuff by Dee's the dead guy, that it just like everyone is just mesmerized by it as soon as they see it. And it's just so powerful emotionally and it's so authentic that like he is kind of in this huge impressive invasive force because it's the first time they've seen something truly authentic in ages. But they just don't dig into that. So it like doesn't work. Like a lot of the stuff that I was enjoying about it, I think was mostly happening in my imagination because I was really into the concept, but it wasn't fully getting articulated on screen. Well, this is part of the problem with almost any work of art, especially filmed work of art. It's a little easier to do this in a book that involves someone creating a work of art within the world of the work of art that you're creating that is like yes. a masterpiece right because well, this is like what we were talking about last week with velvet goldmine <laughs> yes which is one of the very rare exceptions that actually pulls this off because you have to believe that what you are seeing is so amazing that everyone is losing their shit over it and the yeah. paintings in this movie are good like they definitely are good paintings they're like fairly clean cut paintings yes. of humans expressing emotions and I feel like it might almost have been better if they'd made it more of a mystery box and it'd been like my god I'm mesmerized by this like Rothko and then the Rothko curses you yes totally and okay there are two paintings I think that you see multiple times um one hanging on the wall of the young woman who finds them her bedroom you kind of see a couple times and then there's one that's hanging in the initial gallery exhibit when they show his art that like John Malkovich looks at for a while and then like it just gets shown a couple of times by the way sidebar the fact that John Malkovich is cast as like this elder statesman is so perfect this is what I'm saying about the casting is perfect in this movie they just kind of don't use it enough because he doesn't have very much to do in the film he kind of just walks around and like Anyway, I thought um, his role was great. 
And also very refreshing because the last thing I saw him in was that fucking Sandra Bullock zombie movie. And I was like, you're too good for this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But there's not a lot of engagement with the actual art. And I think part of that is due to the fact that the art itself is just not that interesting, right? And so they're just telling you this stuff is so amazing. Everyone wants to pay millions and millions of dollars for it. Don't think about it very hard because like, (laughs) otherwise this is going to be, you're not going to. Just don't think about it. And I think that's a real problem with the movie because I don't think the movie actually has anything to say about art at all. I mean, I think it wasn't really trying to say much about the art. I think it was specifically meant to be about the fact that this world that Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo's characters live in is just completely about economics. Well, right. But I think that that is a weakness of the movie because it is only concerned with the superficiality of that. And then I think because it's only interested in that, it winds up being quite a superficial film. Like it clearly is accurate in a certain sense of like having these characters say certain things and behave in certain ways that ape the way that those people talk and behave that I'm sure if you spend a lot of time amongst those circles, you would recognize that even as sort of a person who's outside of that, you can you can say, oh yeah. Well, I was like, really curious sure. about this, like after watching it, because I was like, surely Dan Gilroy, he must be like an art collector or something. And I looked up, there wasn't that much info about it, but I found an interview where he just said, oh yeah, I went to this art show, like full of all this type of people. And I immediately came home and told my wife, I've got this fantastic idea for a movie. So it kind of, he's more of an outsider than I was expecting. Like, unless he was talking about this as a habit, It kind of sounded like he literally just went to one fucking party and was like, this is such a fun concept. But that's kind of the vibe I got. Like, it seemed like someone who was like, oh, all these fucking people are so dumb. I'm going to make a movie about how dumb they are. Like, that was the vibe I got. It seemed like someone who was like, okay, I'm looking at you from the outside. And like, the whole sort of art scene where people are buying paintings for millions and millions of dollars, like, it is definitely worth critique. Absolutely. The whole Art Basel thing, like, it's fucked up for sure. But there wasn't anything beneath the surface, right? The movie I kept thinking about watching this, which I tweeted immediately as soon as I was done, because it was making me crazy, was The Square, made by Ruben Ostlund, which came out last year, which was one of my favorite movies of last year or of recent years. I am possibly the person who likes this movie the most of anyone in the world. I liked it way more than- I mean, this movie won the main prize at Cannes. Yes, but it was generally (laughs) agreed that it was a compromise choice. Okay. I mean, it's not like it was hated or anything, but I definitely liked it more than the general consensus, I think. I mean, I I watched this just unrelatedly, coincidentally watched this last week. Yeah. And my my response to this, which is like, just makes me a pleb, is that um, I agree that The Square is a better film and is more edifying and has more to say, but I definitely had a more enjoyable and just entertaining experience with this movie. <laughs> See, I watched The Square and laughed my ass off for like 75% of it. I thought it was the funniest fucking thing. It is I'd definitely seen. funny, like, but it's kind of, it's like really excruciating sort of cringy humor for a lot of it. Yes, this is very true. But that movie takes place in an art museum in Sweden, Sweden. somewhere. Um, I don't remember which city. And it's about the like museum director, played by Clay Bang. And it's simultaneously about like this guy's midlife crisis and sort of masculinity and whatever, uh, which is not the point of this digression. And also about museums and the art world and all this stuff. And money and class. Yes, for sure. And you can completely tell watching that. 
that the people making that movie know exactly what they're talking about. Both about museums and art and how all of that works. And also about the actual art itself. And the pitch of that movie is that there's they're installing this exhibit called The Square. And it's literally just like a square with sort of it lights up on the ground outside of the Yeah, you can um, just walk museum. into a square. Yes. And there's a sentence in front of it which reads, The square is the sanctuary of trust and caring. Within it we all share equal rights and obligations. And this basically makes everyone crazy. Like everyone just starts going nuts about especially the main character, about like what this means. There's all this stuff about sort of homelessness and how we exist in a society and whatever. But the square was literally an exhibit that the director and his producer put on at a museum in Sweden before making this movie. Interesting. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah. And did they do this for the film? No. Or it was just, just a, they were just artists? Yes, exactly. And so then okay. the movie is completely about this work of art and then also like expands from that, right? And so it makes you really think... And like, I don't like contemporary art very much. If I just saw the square at like a museum, I would be like, ugh, whatever. But then the whole movie kind of makes you think about this in a really interesting way that I found very thought provoking. I mean, I definitely agree that all of the art in the square is better. Yes. Like, I mean, I'm not like, oh yeah, I mean, clearly they hired like actual artists to make the art in Velvet Buzzsaw, but kind of the stuff that you see, either it's just sort of like fairly, here are some paintings kind of art, or there's a couple of pieces that are just sort of mocking jokes. So there's one that's this sort of weird animatronic robot thing. Um, and they're completely plausible within the bounds of stuff that you'd expect to see at like a pretentious contemporary art exhibit. But they are very just, they're just jokes. Whereas the ones that you see in the square, the whole tone is very humorous and mocking, but it is legitimately, you're like, this is a real piece of art that I would see in a museum. And some people would be like, this is really moving me or making me think. Yeah. And the movie, as you say, is still, it's making fun of these people, but it's also engaging seriously with its subject matter. And there's a whole performance art sequence that is also based on a real thing that happened like 20 years ago. And I just found that movie so much more interesting because A, I just think it's better, but also it clearly is engaging in a real way with the world that it is depicting. And this movie felt a lot more superficial to me. The other movie that it reminded me of, which I don't believe you have seen, is uh, Junebug, which Amy Adams got nominated for her first Oscar for in, I think, 2006. And yeah, I don't... What is it? I don't think I even know what that's about. So, <laughs> basically, uh, it's about this woman who... The sort of, like, rich English woman, I cannot remember the actress's name, who it runs a gallery. She's married to... Uh, or about to marry Alessandra Nivola. And uh, she somehow discovers... I can't remember how this happens... Uh, this outsider artist guy who's like living in the backwoods of North Carolina, which is conveniently very close to where Alessandro Novolo is from. And um, he's making these like very weird paintings that are sort of very kind of two-dimensional. They have little sort of figures in them and that sometimes the little figures have like very large penises. Like you could kind of imagine the thing I'm describing. It later turns out that like he's very racist and she's like, oh, but I still want to represent you but she is like oh my god i could sell these for so much money we have to go see him and then they wind up dealing with his family which is still living in this small town and he's left to go to the big city and it's way more about the 
the family stuff, which is where Amy Adams comes in. This is one of my favorite movies ever. I highly recommend it to people. And it's not really like about art, right? It's more about her being from like a different class and place and coming in. And they're sort of like, what is your deal? But the art stuff that's in it is similar to this in a way because it is the outsider stuff. And it's clear that she isn't actually interested in the art at all. She's just interested in making money. And the movie isn't saying that the art is bad. It's just that she is like, I don't care about this. And I felt like that movie, even in like a secondary way, was also so much more insightful about it than this film. And I was just like, oh, God, like, say something about this. Like, come on. In a way that was very frustrating to me, because I do think that this is a subject that can be really interesting and like, discussed in an interesting way in movies, because you can show the art. And if you actually have art that's interesting, that's something that a movie can do that a book can't. And uh, this movie does it. So those are my two recommendations for you listeners to watch instead of this film, The Square and Nightcrawler. (laughs) Yes, and Nightcrawler, which is great. And was like the the pivot of Jake Gyllenhaal's career from man films to this. He likes to have fun, that boy, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Something I noticed about halfway through watching this film is that um, obviously this wasn't creatively intentional because this film was not made for Netflix. It was distributed by Netflix. But it is a very Netflix-friendly film, I think, because there is lots of really just very zany dialogue that you can put the captions on and have a fantastic screen cap of Jake Gyllenhaal's very mobile and comical face while he says something just very wacky and fantastically worded. There's lots of sort of um, dialogue that is just straight out of like an incomprehensible art exhibit explanation, but like delivered with absolute sincerity by like a total jackass. And that is just, they're very, very good for the good old viral screen cap. And I have noticed that this film has been watched by many a Tumblr teen. Oh my god. Which is not something one expects from most indie dramas. So... Well, the teens have discovered Jake Gyllenhaal recently, so perhaps they're (laughs) following him to his next project. Yeah, this is... The thing is, Jake Gyllenhaal in this film is hotter than he is in Nightcrawler. So there is that in his favour. But obviously Nightcrawler is the superior film. Yes. (laughs) He does have a lot of really good one-liners. There's something he says, I can't remember what it is. He, he, so he's having this relationship with the woman who finds the paintings throughout the movie, which I think plot wise is the thing that works the least well in the course of this movie. It is totally, it just makes no sense. Well, so for like the, for the first half of the film, you're really sympathetic towards Zowie Ashton's character because she, it's really clear that like she's, I mean, she's not like vulnerable because she's she is rich and has chosen to be part of this like shitty world. But you know, she is the person who is kind of the more sympathetic sort of younger character among a bunch of sharks, and she's found this way to bring herself up in the world. But then, as the movie progresses, you realize that she is just like really quite selfish and nasty. Whereas Jake Gyllenhaal, even though he is a pretentious buffoon, is sincerely really dedicated to the art and is actually kind of he actually does have more genuine feelings for her than she does for him. So he is kind of the person who it kind of switches over and you're more sympathetic towards him at the end, I think. Yes, but I just thought it wasn't well done. Like, I thought that her character was kind of, didn't make much sense. Like, yes, she's greedy and ambitious and that's fine. Like, it's not like she has to be a good person. As you say, these people are not by and large good people. But the way she's behaving at the beginning and then all of a sudden, Yes, she gets money and success and that makes is bad for people. But then all of a sudden she turns into this just like cold hearted bitch. I was like, I don't really. What? 
And I think the romance sort of contributes to that because it just feels very forced and I don't think they have great chemistry. Like it just doesn't really, it doesn't, didn't work for me. But yes, the way it is written, she is never massively interested in him. Like they are having a good time, but he's definitely the one who's like very into her. But anyway, she winds up sleeping with David Diggs, who is in this movie for some reason. Doesn't really make sense either. I mean, I'm always happy to see him, but his character is the one that is the least comprehensible. He's like the one nice person in the film. But his actual purpose there is, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he just comes on to like say that he's made a decision and then he disappears again and you never actually see him in the process of making any of these decisions. He's just made them. Uh, But anyway, she does this and then Jake Gyllenhaal shows up in her apartment and sees him there and he has a one-liner this is a stupid anecdote because i can't remember what the one-liner is but he says something to him that is so unbelievably funny i was laughing like a maniac and so there are these moments in the film that are entertaining even though i did not like it but they are 95 percent, i would say due to him and his performance and it was frustrating to me because he has been one of my very favorites since I was 14 years old. And so I will watch him in basically anything. I love him. And I was just like... I mean, I would not characterize this film as a loss for Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) My frustration was that he's giving this amazing performance and it's inside this movie that's like, eh, you know. I mean, the real win is that it gave us the viral clip of him correcting Dan Gilroy's pronunciation of the word melancholy, which (laughs) I have watched multiple times. We will link to it in the show notes if you have not seen it, because that was really the only good thing that happened on the internet in the past week. You saw this, I assume. Oh, of course. Yes. I mean, just wonderful. Tremendous. How many times has he done that? Seems like several. Several times. I just love him. He's he's the best. I can't believe he's doing a, a superhero movie. I'm kind of yeah. shocked. He's a fucking Spidey villain. Well, they didn't manage to catch him to be an actual hero. So he's, you know, he's evolved into the villain zone. And he is playing a very silly villain. Yes. So good for him, I guess. Buy a house. Like, <laughs> it's fine. I mean, his career trajectory has been very interesting because... After initially being like an indie darling, he had several very bad films, including The Prince of Persia and Love and Other Drugs. He basically carefully selected the worst possible hunk rules he could have done. Yes. And then went away for a bit and then came back and did exclusively man films for a while, which was very bad. Let me list off some of them to you. It's really amazing. He did End of Watch with David Ayer, a movie about cops. Prisoners. With Denis Villeneuve, in which he also plays a detective. It's honestly like these films didn't even exist in my world. Yes. (laughs) Enemy with Villeneuve again, which is actually a good movie, but definitely like a man film. You're just Berenstain burying me here. (laughs) I know. Then he did Nightcrawler, which is great. He still had a couple man films to go after that. (laughs) He did Southpaw, which was his boxing movie, which I did not see. Everest, in which he climbed Mount Everest and probably died. Uh, Demolition with Jean-Marc Vallée, which everyone (laughs) forgot. And then finally he was out of it. He did Nocturnal Animals, which apparently was terrible, uh, but definitely I don't think can be qualified as a man film. Life, the space movie, and then was fully out of it with Okja. Stronger, 
Wildlife, The Sisters, Brothers, and Velvet Buzzsaw. Congratulations. There we go. Yeah, good, good stretch. He also, in that time, did Sunday in the Park with George on Broadway, which, like, you know, congratulations. He really just needs to do a musical film, I think. That's my Let wish. Let the boy for him sing. Let him dance. Going forward. Why do we continue to cast people like Ryan Gosling, whom I love, but who cannot sing in musicals when Jake Gyllenhaal is right here? Come on. You know? They don't even have to cast these, you know, amazing Broadway people who can sing and dance but are not famous. Jake Gyllenhaal is very famous. And you listen to that cast album. He's amazing. He can actually do it. Yeah, I mean, my kind of final takeaway from this film, which is kind of regardless of the content and quality of Velvet Buzzsaw, is that there just needs to be more movies about really rich, weird people, which I realize there's like loads <laughs> of mo- like probably most films are about rich people. And there's also, but like in terms of this world of like very rich people who just collect objects, we primarily only see them in the context of heist movies. And I think that if there were more fictional films that really dig into the concept of there being billionaires who are hiding all of their wealth in collections of wine and fine art that they don't look at, then people would maybe have a better understanding of how fake, like, <laughs> the, the, like, I, like the difference between being like a regular rich person and being like a billionaire who's ruining the planet. This is my kind of my just gently subversive plan to get people to understand the true meaning of wealth inequality. Is we just get a whole film which is about you know that one of the Koch brothers who just has a whole building full of like billions of dollars worth of collectible wine where he's been scammed several times because he obviously can't tell if the wine was drunk by Thomas Jefferson or not. But um, that could just be used to like, you know, have water purification or something. So more non-heist related satirical dramas about the evils of money. I fully support (laughs) you. I mean, this was the one problem with Crazy Rich Asians, right? Which was a film I definitely enjoyed. Largely good. But like, those books are just money porn. I mean, there's other stuff going on, but largely declarations of love will be expressed through private jet well, yeah, I mean, trips it's like across- Gossip Girl or Fifty Shades, you know. But I mean, it's not like that is trying to be anything but very explicitly money porn. Oh, but- I know. But I'm saying like that movie came out and there was no discussion of it as such. And I was sort of like, well, but perhaps we could talk about... No, no, no. I just think people are really hesitant to even touch that. Obviously, that movie was a specific case, right? But I think in general, people are just like anxious about discussing the Jeff Bezoses of the world in any capacity, which is unfortunate because we really need to talk about them. But yes, I I agree. If people could start doing that through the movies, that would be good. Um, Next week, as we mentioned last week, we will be talking about uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which you have now seen. Oh my god, it was so good. I saw it this weekend. It was just, oh, it's just tremendous. <sighs> Everyone try to see it if you can. It is currently out in cinemas in the UK. It may still be in cinemas some places in the US. They've re-released it because of the Oscar okay, nominations. Good. So, I mean, I'm sure it's not everywhere, but it will definitely be in various places. I'm going to try to see it again this week because I just loved it. It's it's amazing. It's so good. I saw Richard E. Grant do a Q&A at Film Forum this week, and he was just a, a beaming presence oh. of, 
of joy. You can tell us a bit about that in the next episode. Yes, I shall. So go see that and then come back and listen to our episode next week. So emotional about that film. Which is also very funny. Oh yeah, we should probably say, if you didn't listen last week, yeah, it's a movie where Melissa McCarthy plays someone who, like, she's a writer who forged a bunch of famous literary letters and then Richard E. Grant plays her best friend. Loose term, because they're both people who have isolated themselves from all of their social gatherings. Um, But yeah, he is is her kind of accomplice and he is just tremendous. They're both really great performances, but Richard E. Grant has kind of a more, a more like showy performance. So he's kind of more, slightly more memorable. Yeah, it's great. So watch that. We will be discussing that next week. Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode. If you would like to support our podcast and get more uh, things to read and listen to, you can fund us at our Patreon. We will be recording an extra Q&A episode this week. So if you would like to ask us questions, uh, you can sign up at Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And uh, where can we find your work online? You can find my work on the Daily Dot, my writing, um, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find our podcast on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are also on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. And we have a website where all of our episodes are archived at overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back next week. Bye.